Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Coming up in today's edition, State of the Nation. How has the UK changed through the crucible of Brexit, Covid, parties and war? Are we closer to global Britain or further than ever? Macron end on. Decisive victory or deferral of the inevitable? Our panel digests the French presidential election results. And delivery apps. Is there an ethical way to reward those who bring the world to our doorstep? Or will the gig economy always rely on exploitation? All that and more in this week's Bank. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, you can show your support by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early and advert-free when you back us for as little as £2 and some exclusive merchandise as a thank you. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to former Labour advisor and Times Radio host, Aisha Hazarika. Hello. Hello, Aisha. Angela Rayner seems to have upset some of the conservative benches by having a body that includes a bottom half, the hussy. Um, what could whoever put out this story have been hoping to achieve? Well, it, it's it's just such a depressing uh, story and also just so old-fashioned. Like, whoever has briefed the story out is certainly a man, is like a man of a certain age because if, like, basic instinct is your sexy time cultural reference point, <laughs> I mean, guys, I suspect this is a slightly partridge-type person with leather driving gloves. Like, that's the kind of vibe I'm, I'm sort of getting off it. I mean, it's, it is like completely ridiculous but it's also completely depressing as well I have been involved in Westminster politics since 1997 when I started as a very very junior press officer at the Ministry of Agriculture and the kind of sexism that you saw in that piece is the kind of sexism you would see back in the day in in the 90s when I started working around Westminster and it's just so depressing to think that we haven't really moved on, even though we do have more women in Parliament and we do have more senior female journalists, we have got more political editors, more in broadcast than print. But when it really comes down to to who makes the decision about whether or not to sort of run these kind of tawdry stories, there is just still a a complete sort of gender blind spot on it. I found the whole thing, Mm, I mean, Benny Hill, but also really depressing. So Benny Hill, ha-ha, because it's so ridiculous. Also, I'm sorry, Boris Johnson is such a shagger. Like, nobody even knows how many children he has. The idea he's going to be, like, (laughs) discombobulated by somebody, like, crossing or uncrossing their legs is, like... Come on. Look, to to his credit, the Prime Minister was outraged at the misogyny of judging women on on their clothing, unless he thinks they look like letterboxes, of course. Um, (laughs) Can I ask something? Is there equal blame here on the MPs who briefed, on the journalist who wrote it up, and the editor who approved it? Or is some part of the chain more culpable than others? Well, this is where the big debate is now raging and everybody is now pinning it on this, you know, uh, mythical Tory MP who's briefed it. I'm sure this did come from a Tory MP, but I think there is blame across the chain on this. I mean, I have worked as a as a special advisor and I now work, I've been involved in a number of, of newspapers. And 
to be honest, this strikes me as um, a desperate political editor who didn't have a proper story. I used to be a diary editor. This strikes me as something which, you know, if on a very slow diary day, you might have put it in. So the Mail on Sunday has a diary column called Black Dog. This is the Mm. kind of story I would imagine seeing there. This strikes me that Glenn Owen has failed to get a decent Sunday story. The political editors start ringing around advisors and MPs on a Thursday looking for political stories. Obviously, someone's given him something half-baked. He's taken it to the news desk. They've gone, fine, let's run with it. So I think there's blame all across the, the the chain from whoever briefed it right up to, I mean, I don't think the editor probably would have, have seen this story. It will be a news editor and a picture editor as well. But I'll tell you what the thing that will be common is that we'll be all white blokes of a certain age who will have been involved in the production of this Benny Hill kind of episode. Mm-hmm. Also, trying to throw me off my stride by unbuttoning a shirt button suggestively, we have journalist, author and commentator Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Sorry, I'm just about to cross my legs. I just thought I'd mention (laughs) (laughs) Gavin, you were a journalist. What would you have done with this kind of briefing? Well, look, I agree with everything that Aisha has just said. But the one thing that struck me about this story when I read it was, this is exactly the kind of rubbish that Boris Johnson himself used to write. You know, his his mm-hmm. integration of people of colour in different ways, of, of gay men. I'm not going to quote uh, some of the things he said, but we're all familiar with them. This is the kind of nonsense that he would write to fill, you know, he, he, he to fill a space for, for a, a news editor. And what also struck me was when he was deploring the misogyny uh, and so on, by a remarkable coincidence, Nadine Doris, another member of the cabinet, tweeted exactly the same phrases. <laughs> uh, it's extraordinary how these minds work. Look, we're in the age of cut and paste politics. They can't even get their own excuses. They have to, you know, uh, take them from other people. What I do think is there is a story here, but it's exactly the opposite of the story which was written. And the story is that actually Tory MPs realise that Angela Rayner is a very, very fine debater. All this nonsense about she didn't go to the Oxford Union. Well, thank goodness for that. She's a sort of real human being who scares them because she's actually rather good. And I think uh, the whole classist, sexist, misogynist stuff is absolutely there. It is undoubtedly, as Isha says, some kind of Tory dinosaur who probably does wear driving gloves and, uh, and so on. But the real story is they're worried about her and they're trying to distract in any way they can. I like that take. Um, Let's move on to some real politics, shall we? Um, The government is again threatening action on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, Reports are that it is considering legislation that would allow ministers to switch parts of the agreement on and off, which they insist does not breach the agreement. Um, Is there anything to this, or is it just a desperate attempt to remind voters of Brexit ahead of the local elections and help the DUP out a bit? Well, I think they're not just playing politics with the livelihoods of people, they're playing politics with people's lives in Northern Ireland. I was uh, a couple of months ago, I talked to a number of uh, who I call former paramilitaries, former combatants uh, on the loyalist side uh, about this very thing. And they said there will be trouble after the local elec- after the elections, the local elections across, uh, across England, but also the Northern Ireland elections, uh, because probably actually Sinn Féin may emerge as the biggest party. And this is happening because of the utter incompetence of the Democratic Unionist Party. They 
essentially signed up to Boris Johnson's idea of a Brexit deal without knowing what it was. Mm. Uh, they got quite a lot of money for Northern Ireland. And they were then forced to accept the one thing that unionists of all stripes have been trying to fight against since 1912 and the Ulster Covenant, which is they must not be treated differently from other parts of the United Kingdom. Now, that was always a bit hollow because they always had their own parliament, frankly. It was always different. But this is exactly the kind of problem that Boris Johnson has created And Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, said in 2020, oh, well, we're going to break international law in a very specific and limited way. As we know, does the Prime Minister now. Um. (laughs) It's, it's, It's a mess, but it's a mess of Boris Johnson's making in cahoots with the DUP. And things, unfortunately, could get very nasty after the May elections. Mm. Our special guest today is contributing editor at Novara Media, Moya Lothian-McLean. Welcome to the bunker, Moya. Thank you for having me. Moya, Friday was Stephen Lawrence Day. Do hashtags and corporate sponsors trivialise what it represents? What should it signify? I, I see you saw my social media messages about the I uh, did, I did, and I thought, and I, I, I have to say it made me quite uncomfortable seeing that thing with everyone tagged in it. Yeah, um, so what we're referring to here is, of course, the London Eye uh, was lit up in orange in um, memoriam of Stephen Lawrence Day. Um, But the London Eye is currently sponsored um, operations by lastminute.com, which is a travel site. So the Stephen Lawrence Day Foundation, which is the new foundation run by the Lawrence family, tweeted about uh, the London Eye being lit up orange and tweeted it with the hashtag I love London and lastminute.com at the London Eye, which felt as an onlooker to me, the sort of rock and the hard place I think people have been put in the present era when it comes to the idea of activism or getting the money to do certain types Mm. of activism. You either have to get it from sort of the state or you're looking to big business to raise awareness of these causes. And I think, you know, Stephen Lawrence Day becoming an uh, occasion that is closely linked with the sponsorship of a uh, tourist attraction was very demoralizing indeed, especially as we still haven't really seen the sort of justice that was supposed to come from the aftermath of Stephen's murder and the learnings that we had about uh, racism within the police force, particularly it's 2022 and the police force is still, especially the Metropolitan Police, are still facing widespread accusations about institutional Mm. racism. So, you know, the the London Eye being lit up orange wasn't exactly Mm. the, the beacon of hope we need there. And yeah. Alex, can I can I just do an afterthought? I completely agree with what Moya said. And in a in an earlier life, I was a press officer on the police desk at the Home Office when the McPherson report into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and how the Metropolitan Police handled it. And it was that landmark report that coined the phrase "institutional racism." And I was the press officer assigned to look after the Lawrence family that day. And, you know, it was a day that will stay with me for the rest of my life. They were so strong, so dignified. And everybody makes the right noises about wanting to do the the right thing. Yet very recently, we had that unbelievable report from the government. Institutional racism is such a powerful and important concept to grasp. And then we had a report into racism saying, actually, there is no structural racism um, in this country. So, we have we've it feels like we have diverted so far away from 
the the kind of core aspects of, of the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the fallout of his murder. You know, it's hard to believe. I, I was doing a little bit of research, um, and it's it seems unfathomable that Stephen Lawrence would have been forty eight years old today if he was still around. Um, Moya, do you think there has been some, albeit slow, progress in how police and the state more generally treat uh, BAME people? Is the arc of history, however cumbersomely, still moving in the right direction? I honestly don't know if it's my place to judge whether there has been the idea of progress in in that treatment um, of ethnic minority individuals at the hands of the police, because I'm somebody who hasn't particularly experience that direct interaction with Mm. the police um, despite being a person of colour it's specifically depends on the communities you talk to you know if you talk to somebody who is a person of colour and doesn't come into the police into contact with the police very much then they might say yeah there's been loads of progress it's been great Mm. like Mm. I have like I, I don't feel targeted by the police but if you go to communities which tend to be it have intersecting sort of inequalities. If you look at lower income communities who also happen to be communities that are particularly racialized, then these are the communities which are disproportionately over police. There was a, a report the other week about a young black boy who'd been stopped and searched, I think, something like 60 times in two years by police officers. That sort of incident and that's those sort of stories tell us that, you know, policing might have changed in the sense that you know if there's a is if there's a overtly racist attack on somebody then the police will probably not go and try and infiltrate that person's family to discredit their campaign for justice but there is still this as we talked about structural racism and i've heard this from people with inside the police force as well which is going to color every single sort of interaction that mm-hmm. they have with members of those communities who come to them either for help or are on the receiving end of that policing um so i don't even know if it's a case of saying oh we can say there's been progress made because until structural racism is you know taken out of policing altogether and taking out of these institutions where we identify it then can we really talk about progress full stop this blessed plot this earth this realm this england conservative party chairman oliver dowden tweeted for st george's day actor sam west pointed out how john of gaunt's speech from richard ii continues this england is now leased out bound in with shame with inky blots and rotten parchment bonds, that England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself. As a foreigner, I came to this country 30-odd years ago with easy preconceptions of Britishness, good and bad, of class divide and coldness, of punctuality and good manners, of Margaret Thatcher and Shirley Valentine, of Oxbridge and Lagerlouts, I have seen those assumptions challenged and the country change, and those changes have never been more pronounced than in the last few years. Moya, let's say you meet someone on holiday who is thinking of moving here. What would your potted summary of Britain as a country be at this very moment? Oh, (laughs) that's the problem is it would just be a two-word answer or even one word, I would say, if they said, I'm thinking of moving here, I would say don't, which is sad. (laughs) It's sad, isn't it? Um, I think when I think about the state of England at the moment, I think of it as a country that has become narrower, 
more in all sense of the word, you know, narrow borders, narrow minded, sort of like narrow community structures. It's got smaller in every way that it shouldn't have. And it's got bitterer as a result. And I think it makes it very difficult for people to currently live here and survive. And I'm not just talking about the economic crisis we're going through. I'm also talking about the mindset. There is a pessimism, a sort of miasma of paranoia and distrust that I think has settled upon England. And I think people desperately want to get out of that. They want that optimism and hope, but they have no idea where to look for it. You've got everything. It feels like everything's collapsing. And the question now we we face is, how do we offer an alternative to the current structures that are making the causing such a miseration and how do we bring back the sense of hope that I think is absolutely essential to making those a reality mm, yes I think you're right it feels it feels like a tailspin and out of control and and there's a powerlessness to that polling shows that immigration is not the hot button issue that it was until quite recently the Rwanda policy isn't all that popular the government was certainly behind the public curve on helping those fleeing Ukraine. Why then is foreigner bashing still seen as a vote winner? I think foreigner bashing, as you put it, is seen as a vote winner because there is a lack of political imagination at the moment that we're mm, seeing mm. in Westminster in parliamentary politics, uh, which is just returning to the same old issues that have worked, or at least ostensibly worked, before. So the spectre of immigration has been something that has been called upon by parties as a as a vote winner, as you put it, for absolutely decades since we established the sort of borders, the modern borders that we have now. And I think it shows a real failure of the political imagination when you immediately see a party return to oh, you know, everything's going wrong, the economy's tanking, uh, people are not happy, let's go to, who should we blame it on? Okay, immigration. And I, I don't know how much longer the Conservatives in particular are going to be able to flog this dead horse, as it were, because they've already got as tough on immigration as you could possibly get. And now they're getting, it was already inhumane, and they're pushing it beyond even the limits of what their most hardline base wanted from the immigration policies that they promised. You see with Rwanda policy that if you phrase the question of, you know, deporting, I think in, in poll groups, the polling that's come out, if you phrase, phrase the question of is deporting people to Rwanda humane policy, then they go, oh no, that's a bit much. That's too much even for me. Mm, so you're mm. seeing that there, there is a line, it turns out. It's a very, a line that I'm horrified by, but there's, a, there's still a line. In terms of the Tories returning to it again, we've seen an outcry from all corners. Yes, on radio shows, occasionally you will get um, hosts reading out the most extreme text possible. But I would not say those people are um, the representative of the wider population when it comes to policies like deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda. And not just, can we stress, to um, be processed, which would be inhumane. But to actually apply there, yes. to, to be resettled there. Yeah, the policy yeah. is you apply there and if your asylum application is granted, you stay in Rwanda. On, on all fronts, it's, it's, an, it's a new low. And I don't think it will be a vote winner. What we're seeing instead is, is apathy. But analysis of the most recent polling, which shows Labour ahead, it's not down, unfortunately, to Labour winning new voters. It's down to the Tories 
um, losing, losing voters. Yeah. So the, what we see when the when politics in this country and the political sphere becomes degraded is not more activity, not more political engagement. We see disengagement, we see apathy, and we see nihilism. And that mm. is recipe for disaster. Mm. Gavin, w- one of the very first things I realized when I moved here is that a whole load of things perceived as identifying characteristics of Britishness from the outside are actually characteristics of Englishness usually southern Englishness, which is actually quite unfair stereotypes imposed on Scots and Northern Irish and Welsh and Northern English. Um, Your latest book, How Britain Ends, identifies English nationalism as the the destructive force at the centre of much of what's going on. Can you explain that a bit? Yes. I mean, I think the roots of English nationalism are in what I call in the book nostalgic pessimism. Everything was always better in the past. It was the blitz spirit. And, you know, Oliver Dowden, to quote that wonderful speech, Shakespearean speech of John of Gaunt, that was written in 1595 by Shakespeare, uh, making John of Gaunt saying that England isn't as good as it used to be. This is in 1595. And of course, the joke is that John of Gaunt was a Belgian. He was Jean de Gaunt. So <laughs> England was not only not as good as it used to be, it was never what we think it is. And the same is true even of that other great uh, sort of hymn of Englishness, Jerusalem, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's pastures green? Did Jesus walk in England? Well, no, he didn't. But even then, William Blake is talking about a past, a wonderful past, but he doesn't like the dark satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution, one of the greatest economic achievements of England. Uh, and this runs right through to today. So we have our Brexit discussions, which in England were constantly about take our country back mm. rather than forward, or that other great notion that we've somehow, meaning England, muddled through for a thousand years. Well, we haven't actually. We've muddled a lot, but that's not the way it is. <laughs> and then there's the other one, which is the, the, the point that you, you raised, Alex, which is, you know, Cecil Rhodes, uh, uh, other great Englishman who is known as the British imperialist, once said that, ask any man anywhere in the world what he'd rather be in 99% say he'd rather be an Englishman. Now, even 120 years ago, when Rhodes said that, if you tried that in a Glasgow pub, it wouldn't go down too well. So <laughs> there are, there's a sort of series of delusions which um, are very attractive in some ways because they're comforting. But the idea that things were always better in the past prevents a recognition of how difficult things are, as Moya says, in the present. And fail means we fail as a nation, meaning the United Kingdom in this sense, to come to terms with what we need to do for the future. Aisha, many are asking, why has Britain forgotten its tradition of welcoming refugees? But let's take the point that Moya uh, made about how immigration has been weaponized for decades. How real is that tradition? I mean, I understand that the political tendency to self-soothe, it's it's always easier to say that something is, you know, terribly un-British. Um, it, it makes it easier to sell. But is there also a sort of denial of reality there that, you know, the kinder transport was a kinder transport because the UK wouldn't wear adult Jews coming to the country. So even as far back as that. Yes, and I think that is an important point. I think we sometimes 
you know, we definitely forget um, the reality of the kinder transport. You know, I'm very close to Alf Dubs and he does remind me that, yes, it was great that all these little children came over. But actually, we were forcing families apart because we were not letting their parents come. I mean, immigration is always um, a, a difficult issue for the left, that the right time immemorial have weaponized immigration as a as a sort of wedge issue. And I think my dealings with immigration, uh, particularly with the the Ed Miliband and and certainly the the run up to the 2010 general election campaign and then the 2015 general election campaign, is that I think the left is quite frightened to put forward a sort of moderate, uh, sort of common sense position on immigration because what most people I think are quite middle of the road. Most people in this country. I don't think are racist. People don't want uncontrolled immigration. They don't want open borders because of resources. And when you dig into the anxieties that people have about immigration, it does tend to be around a scarcity of resources, which comes back to a bigger question about government and funding, particularly in more deprived areas. Now, there is something which the left find quite difficult to talk about, and that is cultural issues. So in the past, whenever there has been an issue about immigration, the left uh, or the Labour Party will always go to it. And I remember this very well. Oh, um, we everyone should be paid the same and, and the minimum wage. But we know that is kind of nonsense because there's hardly been any prosecutions of failure to, to pay the minimum wage. So we would always go to an economic answer. But there are some things which are cultural, which the left should have a response to. And again, there is a common sense, progressive answer to that, which is most people actually do want to get on with their neighbours. Most people do think that a, a multicultural country is a richer country. And we're actually we're seeing that post Brexit. I mean, most people are looking at what's happened in terms of, um, you know, not just skills being lost from this country, but, you know, feeling pretty bad about yeah, how yeah. a whole group of people were demonised and sort of driven out the country. I think where the right capitalises on immigration is that the left is frightened to have the debate because they're frightened of being accused by um, some on the left are saying, well, you're, you're racist to even kind of get involved in it. And then they're scared of the right going, oh, you're soft on immigration. And I think that's been a really big mistake for the left. And I think it was a big mistake in terms of the, the run up to Brexit as well. I remember being with people on the Remain side and um, the, the general sort of briefing notes that went out had a, in blocks sort of right. It basically said, just don't get involved. Don't talk about immigration. Don't even get engaged mm, in mm. the topic. And actually nature abhors a vacuum. And into that space came in some very dark forces spearheaded by Nigel Farage. Gavin, Johnson has also presided over an unprecedented breakdown in conventions, really, um, from the prorogation of parliament to a PM subject to criminal sanctions, from, from outright corruption in the awarding of contracts to a breakdown of relations with the civil service. Is our constitutional setup equipped to bounce back if there's a change of government? Or are we looking at permanent scarring here? I, I think that is the core question. I think Partygate is not about Johnson. It's about abuse of power. And it's about how someone even 
more cunning than Johnson, uh, but more subtly could abuse power with the whole notion of the crown in parliament and effectively a prime minister marking his own homework when it comes to, to these issues. Professor Peter Hennessy, Lord Hennessy, once advanced the good chap theory of government, that good chaps knew when it was time to, and it would all be chaps, uh, when it would be time to, to quit when they were caught lying or sleeping. Mm doing sleazy things and so on. Uh, we've gone past that. We haven't got good chaps in government. We have got people who are prepared to manipulate a system. Now, it seems to me the fault is not, for, in a sense, in this sense, for Boris Johnson from doing it and taking advantage of it. It's from the rest of us for not actually thinking how we need to change the system. I noticed that Andy Burnham, Labour uh, Mayor of Greater Manchester, is talking about complete rewiring of the political system, which is the thing I argue and how Britain ends, that we have to, if if the United Kingdom is to stay together, we have to rewire the political system. And... Uh, I, 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 Proportional representation is part of it, substantial regional devolution is another part, and also actually getting rid of all this mumbo-jumbo about the glories of an unwritten constitution. There are only three democracies in the world that have unwritten constitutions. They are Britain, 68 million people, New Zealand, 5 million people, and Israel, 9 million people. And it just doesn't work for us in the 21st century, it seems to me. So to all three of you, to wrap this up, uh, fill me with optimism um, I throw this out to everyone. What are the the signs that the tide might be turning? What what are the green shoots that make you feel uh, more optimistic? I I think we've had Gavin's answer. He's 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 talking about effectively profound constitutional reform, a written constitution with proper checks and balances. What about you, Moya? I would say the things that are giving me the green shoots of hope are probably watching a, a renewal, a burgeoning renewal in local community action and people getting involved once again in the communities around them. Because I think that ultimately leads to a reversal of the political disengagement at the national level. And if you can only start small to fix the wider issues when you've been bruised several times, but also maybe perhaps a bit more solidarity between the left and the centre-left, which is slow, but I'm starting to see it re-emerge in the face of such an overwhelming, I guess, uh, foe that's currently... Oh, from your lips. <laughs> from your lips. What about you, Aisha? I mean, I would say, well, look, the collapse of Rishi Sunak has certainly helped, um, but that gave me joy. But I do think the... No, you're, you're not allowed. I can't allow that. That's not optimism. That's schadenfreude. That's schadenfreude. It's an entirely different emotion. Oh, I just wanted... I wanted a branded Insta picture of him crying in his hoodie, but that, that never happened. But um, So I do think the thing that gives me a bit of optimism is I do think the Labour Party has got a long way to go, but I do think the Labour Party is starting to get its act together. I'm up in Scotland now. And one of the things, I mean, Gavin, I don't know what you feel about this, but one of the things, I was up here last week as well, and I've been speaking to so many different people. And one of the things I'm really struck by is how so many people are willing to have a conversation about Labour again. I think Anna Sawa is really good. I do think Keir Starmer is doing a, a good job. He's, he's not perfect, but I think the shadow cabinet is, is much better than anything we've seen for, for, for a while. So that does give me a tiny bit of optimism. I think people are prepared to look at Labour again, because, look, 
whatever the rights and wrongs of our constitution, the way things are framed out right now, there's only one person that can knock Boris Johnson out of Downing Street and take over, and that is Keir Starmer. And people are just not saying they're there at all, but they're prepared to just look at the Labour Party again, and that is good. Kept very still on Sunday night, around 7pm, you could hear a sigh of relief from Washington to Athens, as initial projections made it clear that Emmanuel Macron had won a second term as President of France. Received wisdom in the UK was what it has been for most French presidential elections in the last decade. Yes, OK, but too close. Aisha, was it too close? Le Pen only squeaked into the second round by 400,000 votes. Well, I was um, on air when the result came through. We did a, a special extended show. And it was so interesting that people sort of racing to own the narrative. So people, there were a lot of people going, oh, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible result for Macron because Le Pen has, has done so well. But then we did actually speak to one of the Hommage MPs. And they it was a bit of a sort of you know, palate cleanser and reminder. He was like, come on, this is, you know, an incredibly decisive win, which it is. And this is the first president in 20 years to have come back and and held the, the title. So I do think we have to be incredibly vigilant. We have to be ever vigilant about the rise of the right and the rise of populism. But I think we also need to take a moment and say something did actually go go right here well it didn't go right obviously mm, that's mm. a good thing um but you know i do think we have to give macron his his due what's now going to be interesting is to see how these parliamentary elections shake down the thing that we've got to keep an eye on is will zamur and le pen come together and will the right mobilize and will they have a, a any significant uptake in the number of, of mps that they get at those parliamentary elections and Slovenia, um, uh, of course, is another good example, who also ha- had uh, an election on Sunday and in which the sort of right-wing populist incumbent was absolutely knocked out of the park by a completely new sort of liberal coalition party that didn't exist really four months ago. I mean, they, I think they came together in January. Gavin... Macron made a much more conciliatory and humble victory speech this time. A lot hangs on the parliamentary election in June. If he ends up with a majority in parliament, he could be unstoppable in his final term, at least consecutive. If he loses it, France could face paralysis. What are the early predictions? Well, I would just... Uh, focus a little bit first on the dog that didn't bark. I mean, what happened to the left in France and who held their noses and voted for Macron to keep uh, Le Pen out? That's very interesting. And the question, for me at least, would be uh, whether Mélenchon and uh, the Greens and others can in some way combine and there could be a rebuilding of the left in France uh, Mm -hmm. to deny Macron. Uh, I mean, he he has won a stunning victory, actually. It seems to me he's 16% lead. Now, you know, if uh, if Biden had won a 16% lead, oh, uh, uh, then we would have said it was a, a thumping victory. So Yeah, it's 17% actually on the final um, results. It's up to 17. 17. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it is a, it is a, a large margin. Um, 
because of the way the legislative elections work, Marine Le Pen, despite being runner-up again, could end up with a derogatory number of seats, like she did last time. She managed only eight. Is that functionality at the center of her popularity? Do, do you see what I mean? I, I, I do, and I, and I also I I seem to have spent you know a, a good proportion of my professional life uh, hearing that uh, Al Le Pen is about to become president of France, yeah, and it's yeah. able to happen. I'm pleased it ha- ha- hasn't happened. So. Uh, it is very, very difficult to see where France is going to go in this because of the question about the realignment of the left, if that is at all possible, Um, because they do seem to be uh, somewhat at each other's throats. And we've seen that in this country. And uh, Moya alluded to it before, if, uh, if, if the left and more moderate people in a broadly of the left don't get on then it opens up other opportunities for other people so that to me is the question for for the next couple of months mm. Moya, um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon came very close to being the second round challenger he's now targeting the legislative elections forget the presidency he said I can lead France as its prime minister what might a left-wing prime minister and government mean for Macron for France for Europe. How does that change the shape of things? I mean, that's a big question. It is, um, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you're asking me that to make predictions, which I hate doing um, because politics changes so quickly. I think what we do. I, need to I'm not. On... I'm making the prediction for you're you. You're making the prediction. So I'm, <laughs> um, I'm giving you the hypothetical and just play along. <laughs> I'll, I'll play along. I. It's difficult to say. I mean, a left-wing prime minister for France would, I hope, mean the return of big blue sky thinking once more. Hmm. What is interesting about the French voters, I think so far we've called it a stunning victory, which I would actually disagree with heavily. And even though the left did, as you say, hold their nose, I think 91% of Mélenchon voters um, ended up voting for Macron in the end. But abstention was about 28%, which was the highest in 50 years. Mm. It was higher than even in the first round, where I think one in four people abstained from voting. This, This was not what I would call a stunning victory. This was I would say it is it is scraping by. No right winger should be coming that close to the presidency. And it all comes down to the promise that Macron made in his first term, which he failed to fulfill, which is there will be no more reason for anyone to feel like they have to vote for an extreme. And I think what Macron meant by that statement is part of the reason that he has failed to perhaps deliver that unity he was talking about because he didn't just mean what he sees as the extremes of the far right. He meant the extremes of what he sees as the left. But Mm. the problem is that I believe that the left, the further left are also part of a solution to these sort of ideas that the right are putting forward. The right exploit a gap. They exploit the spaces where people feel dissatisfied, where they turn to nationalist sort of ideologies, where they look for these easy answers that are sort of, apply that are supplied by the right which are these narratives of you know scapegoating immigration scapegoating sort of the scarcity of resources on other people and something that i think hasn't been picked up very much on is that macron actually did i think seed ground to the right by taking on right-wing narratives throughout his presidency he's really cracked down on sort of the ability of Muslims to live freely in that country. There's been the banning of wearing the hijab in public service roles. There has been extreme sort of Islamophobic 
rhetoric filtering into the mainstream parroted by Macron. And that was, we talk a lot about Zemmour making Le Pen seem softer by example, but we don't talk about the right-wing rhetoric that had already made the pen seems softer and that had been laid, the groundwork had been laid by Macron during his previous term. Um, mm. And by not, in, I think, embracing some of the left ideas and trying to do things like, you know, raise the age of when pensions can be awarded, then he is really failing to come up with the big solutions to the problems that are facing his country. And I was in France, actually, um, as many people are regularly. I was in France recently and in March and we came across a protest which was talking about social housing. And it was very striking to me to see that all of the people who were campaigning for this housing and this provision of housing were people of colour. And there was one stat that I was I was told by somebody who's reporting on the ground and will be reporting for Navarra that I think 70% of Muslim voters voted for Melanchon. There is a real coalition to be found there and people who feel really aggrieved by the treatment that they have received from Macron as mm. part of this sort of idea of this, you know, unified France, this fraternity. But it's not a fraternity if it's not sort of like embracing diversity, instead trying to flatten it. Food delivery is a combination of three of our favourite things, or so the meme goes. One, food. Two, not moving. Three, avoiding people. But how often do we think about the politics of deliveries? Deliveroo recently announced a deal with the Trussell Trust, a charity that runs a series of food banks that will enable customers to add a roundup donation to their in-app food orders. But critics have pointed out that Deliveroo deliverers are so poorly paid that they have had to, on occasion, rely on food banks. To the whole panel, how much do you use delivery services? Is any of you a sort of Deliveroo virgin, ideologically opposed to it, or is someone a real addict and does it every night? I've never used Deliveroo, I confess, ever. Oh, so I know nothing about I, I, you know, n- never. We we have a live one. <laughs> what about you, Moya? Oh me, um I have I did used to use it, but I've actually stopped using it. Partly I I'll get on occasion if it's a really late night, then I'll probably order something. But there was a guilt in using it and also it costs it costs a lot of money. I don't know if people know this. Delivery costs a lot of money, but not much of it's going back in the pockets of the couriers actually delivering the food. Yeah, or the restaurants. Um what about you, Aisha? So as um, predicted, I am like the the big, if if Gavin is the saint, I am the sinner here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? I mean, who knew? So I, during the pandemic, I used Deliveroo so much. I support, formed like a support bubble with my Deliveroo driver. So that is basically, that's how much I used um, Deliveroo. I've kind of weaned myself off it a bit now um, just because it is very expensive and it's not very good for you. And I, um, but I, I am quite an addict of Deliveroo, I have to say, mainly because I'm so crap at cooking, as you know, Alex, and I'm really <laughs> lazy. I'm, I'm like a sloth. Gavin, are food delivery drivers different from low-paid dishwashers or cooks who have for years worked to prepare our food? Or is, or is it just added embarrassment because we come face to face with them? Yeah, I assume that that's the that, that's the question. I mean, the uh, the problem here is not Deliveroo. If Trussell Trust feel that they're okay, I don't know. I know 
a bit about Trussell Trust and like many people, you know, you give to your local food bank and so on. Uh, the problem is that there are too many food banks because there are too many people in need. They all, you know, the, the cliche is there's 2,200 food banks in this country, 1,300 of them are run by Trussell Trust and 1,300 McDonald's fast food outlets. So that gives you an idea that we've got more food banks than we have got um, McDonald's. That is the the, the problem, the need for that, and it's going to get worse. And that is low paid across the board. And delivery drivers are obviously part, part of it, but so are the people that you don't see, the hospital porters and others that are not particularly well paid, and other drivers for other services too. And that is the problem. And we have not addressed, because the government, this government is not interested in it, it talks about levelling up but does nothing actually about it or about low pay that is of any significance. And it's going to get worse because of all the problems with inflation and fuel bills and so on that we're going to see this winter coming. So you, you've been asking for optimism. I can't really give you... I can't well, really... You've give, all been rubbish at that. Moya, yeah. um, we're talking about fixes for the gig economy, but can the gig economy be fixed? Or is it just an inherently exploitative model that offers zero benefits and zero security to employees? It's a way for companies to get out of being an, an employer. Well, I have to agree with everything you've said there. I do think the gig economy probably can't be fixed, but the issue we're struggling with is that it is a material reality at the moment. So you have the long-term sort of plan of can we, you know, change the gig economy? Can we make it something completely different? Can we restructure it? Can we maybe abolish it altogether and actually provide secure employment? How can we make sure that people working in the gig economy have security of pay, of working conditions, of long-term employment if they need it? It's the question of what, you know, the question of there is work in the UK that people are currently doing. How do we make that good work, decent work? How do we improve that for people? For example, I think there was a Bureau of Investigations study that came out in 2021, which found that one in three delivery riders made less than £8.72, which is under the minimum wage, for all their time spent in the app on one session. Mm. So... And gig economy work has, I think, tripled over the last five years. We're facing these questions of how do we make sure these people are protected? I think actually probably it would be more useful um, for me to just quickly reference an article that was re written recently in the Metro by a, a courier called Stefan Piratu, who delivers food. And he was talking about how he first became a food delivery courier in 2019. But since the cost of living crisis has happened, he's classified as an independent contractor, but everything's gone up. And what people don't know is that for these independent couriers, for example, Stefan works for Uber Eats Delivery, another partner called Stuart, um, which is a it, it's a company that's spin off of Just Eat. That what they have to do is they cover all of their own expenses, fuel repairs, insurance, and it's taken out of the the fee that they're paid per delivery, and that payment only covers the journey to the house, not the trip back to the restaurant. So the pay that they actually receive once those things are deducted is very, very little. And it's on those terms that the gig economy works. It is an exploitative industry at heart. Yeah. Aisha, as the sinner of the group, is guilt tipping the answer? I have to say, I, I use uh, delivery services only occasionally because I'm conscious of the politics behind them and and my way of dealing with that is just to guilt tip loads of money to the driver in the restaurant 
can do people have more power than they realize actually to redress that balance you know if you if you think these people are are unfairly paid put your money where your mouth is and give them a big tip i mean i definitely tip um quite big but i think the reason why the gig economy works is because people are frail human frailty and people like convenience and i actually think that what a big part of this is just about how sparse our employment rights are and how our employment rights do need to catch up with the fact that we do have this new way of working precarious work is a big deal the fact that unions I mean there has been an uptick in union membership but historically over the last few decades union membership has hugely declined there's you know, very few private sector companies which even allow unions in. So there's nobody there to do that bargaining for people. I mean, the GMB did a great job going into Uber and forcing Uber to improve its terms and conditions. And I think for a lot of people, it's the convenience which drives the appeal of the gig economy. Mm, And actually, mm. a lot of people, look, if you've got If you're using the gig economy regularly, you have got a fair amount of disposable income. And I think most people wouldn't mind paying more to have um, proper pay and working conditions. But there's no way of, you know, there's nothing to force those companies to to do it. So, I mean, I Mm. think the thing to do is, you know, governments and actually not just the Conservative government, successive governments have been trying to grapple with this new thing of precarious work. Matthew Taylor did a big report for Theresa May when she was Prime Minister, but it didn't really come up with any big um, solutions. I mean, you do have to, I think, introduce some quite strong, toughened up labour laws in this country. But of course, we don't have a government that's going to do that now, particularly in a post-Brexit world, where they want to try and lighten regulation, not increase regulation. Let's finish with something fun. Um, So I have seen a receipt with the following instruction. I want the pizza base crispy, but not too crispy. If that's vague, think of it as a boyfriend you want to flame, but with whom you still hope to get back together. What's the most ridiculous cooking or delivery instruction you have ever typed in? I'm just so grateful that somebody else is cooking my dinner, not poisoning me, and somebody's going to deliver it to my house. So I'm just like, I would say, I'm just like, thank you. And when also, when the when the delivery man comes, I am so grateful. I'm quite often just like literally ready to <laughs> hug the poor person and just say, thank you so much for feeding me because I would kill myself. Because let me tell you, listener, the day don't always show up. <laughs> but you, Kevin. I like to cook, so uh, I, I haven't given anyone any delivery instructions ever. But I have been given cookery instructions, including one of my German relatives. We were at, uh, at cooking for an, an aged other relative, and this German relative said to me, would you make spaghetti bolognese? And I said, sure. And she said, but no garlic, no onions, not too much salt, no pepper, and not spicy. <laughs> Yes, so not spaghetti bolognese. I don't know. Um, it was basically hot meat, I think. Was what <laughs> yeah, my, I think my favourite uh, instruction is Nigella Lawson when she describes her perfect roast potatoes, where she says, um, put the fat in the oven until frighteningly hot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wonderful. 
And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What books, film, TV, or other hobbies have taken you away from the bruising world of politics this week? How about you, Gavin? Uh, I've been reading an absolutely wonderful book called Freezing Order by Bill Browder, who's the guy behind the Magnitsky Act, who um, I hope to be interviewing in a couple of days' time. He is the man who single-handedly took on Putin for his corruption, and I've been doing quite a lot of work with Bill over the years. It absolutely reads like a thriller, and I I can't recommend it too highly. I also actually (laughs) picked up a copy of, because somebody suggested I should look at it, Darkness at Noon, which is, again, not a lot of laughs, as the title suggests. (laughs) But there's a wonderful quote in it uh, from Arthur Kersler, which says, do you really believe this idiocy, or do you only pretend to? And I've been thinking about that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, since, since I read it a few days ago and have been looking at various tweets from various political leaders. In our yes, country. really. Every every morning when someone does the media rounds, I think that. Aisha, how about you? So I've been reading a great book by Daisy Buchanan, who is fast becoming my new favourite author. She's sort of like the love child of Jilly Cooper and Helen Fielding. She's absolutely brilliant. And her latest book is called Careering. And it's just brilliant. It's just all about the kind of trials and tribulations of of starting your life and making your way. And it's very good. It's very funny, but it is also a very good commentary on just how hard it is to, you know, get your break in a city like London if you don't have bank of mum and dad, if you're not doing a free internship, just like how hard it is for people Mm. starting out. And my TV show that I have absolutely loved is the BBC Two adaptation of Life After Life, which is the novel by Kate Atkinson. It's on BBC iPlayer. It's four episodes. It's absolutely wonderful. It's very fragile. It's very sad. It's very ethereal and supernatural. It's about this girl who keeps dying and she gets rebirthed. And it's got these really amazing parallels with what's happening now. It's sort of set just um, in the First World War. But there's so many parallels pessimism uh <laughs> spanish flu europe at war it's and it's so beautiful to watch so it's, i highly recommend it but it's very sad sounds cracking how about you moya um so the thing i would recommend probably that i've been watching as a balm to the current world around us is actually a series that was originally made for children it's called avatar the last airbender and it's available on netflix and it's one of the most fantastic TV series I've ever seen in my life. It's this wonderful exploration of sort of these big themes about everything from genocide to humanity to philosophy to ethics. It's about this young kid called Ang who happens to be the last of his culture. He's a he's an airbender, so he can do this this sort of magic thing. It's an it's a saga. It's an epic, uh-huh. and he's his his tribe have been wiped out because they were at war with this but really big imperial nation called the fire nation and there's these four elements and he goes on this big journey to sort of live into his destiny as the person who will end the war but it explores all these huge themes in a way that is just so it's one of those things like pixar it's really it's made for children but it's also made for adults and if i could i would put it on the curriculum oh i i I love the sound of it thank you oh it's fantastic honestly try it try try the first four episodes and i promise i will i'm watching and reading everything everyone says my my one is russian doll um, we had to wait a long time for season two to drop, but it finally did. And Natasha Leone just delivers the best one-liners 
uh, ever known to man, including turns out I'm the norm of this cheers. Um, every time you compliment me, a cockroach gets its wings. And my favorite is this hospital treating patients today, or are we just putting on a Beckett play? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Gavin Esler. Thank you. To Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. And a huge hug to our special guest, Moya Lothian McLean. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout-out at the end of the podcast and hear us on now. Best wishes from me to Robert Shell, Steph and Ben Dilley. And it's a big thanks from me to Anne Mervang, Neil Jube and Leslie Weston. And best wishes from me to Lucy Winster, Hal Pawson and Tim Sears. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Alexandreu with Aisha Hasrika and Gavin Esler. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. In Avatar, I would have been in the Water Tribe. I'm 27 years old and I have no regrets. Assistant production by Lena Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>